with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. All right, I'm looking really forward to this conversation. This is Trudy Clausen here, and my guest today is Professor Daniel Sims from, uh, well, he, he's working at UNBC. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Um, so Daniel, Daniel is a historian, um, and he wrote a book called uh, the the Dam Bennett. I have written Dan. It's Dan Bennett, the impact of the WAC Bennett Dam. Uh, but you are a born. Uh, you're from Prince George, but you are a Seke. That's your heritage. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about your growing up and? Yeah, and so my parents grew up in uh, Sekedene. My dad is from Sekedene. Uh, I grew up in the Prince George area with family connections in Sekedene. Still go back to Sekedene regularly. And um, yeah, I just had the experience of living up here in northern British Columbia and eventually moved away to go to uh, the university in Alberta. Great. Um, so did you spend your summers up at Seke or what did you do up there? Uh, no, not necessarily my summers, but just visiting family members. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. And uh, okay, so one other thing that uh, is interesting with Daniel is he was nominated for a Governor General's Award and uh, for, the, for the book that I mentioned, The Dam Bennett, The Impact of the WAC Bennett Dam. So maybe um, let's talk about that first, uh, because that's something that I mean, I grew up near the Bennett Dam, or relatively near, and I was born the year that it was finished, but I grew up knowing the legend or the stories of how this dam was supposed to, like the benefit, like, you know, we all knew about the drawbacks, but we the benefit to the community was supposed to be, or to the area, was supposed to be we would have this massive lake that we could enjoy and fish in and boat on, and I mean, that's my experience, so... That's different than, of course, than the people who who lived in the area, like right close. Uh, so, what brought you to write that book and and uh, to tell that story? Well, it's just the family history, the family stories. Um, hearing about uh, the time before the dam, hearing about the build up for the uh, towards the dam, hearing the stories that you've also heard about how the dam was supposed to be incredibly beneficial. Wilson Lake would become this wonderful recreation Mecca. lake. <laughs> Uh, then also hearing from various family members about what actually happened when the water started coming up, um, the devastation that that caused, the uh, social disruption that that caused. And then uh, once I got into university, actually finding that there really wasn't much written about the Bennett Dam from a CKNA perspective. Uh-huh. Um, there's a few pieces that exist, but uh, they're not necessarily written from any sort of perspective from the community. So right. there's the famous This Is Our Valley, which mostly focuses on Hudson Hope. An area. Okay, so that's that's where CK would have been through all through to Hudson's Hope. Yeah, that would have been kind of the uh, I would say eastern boundary of the traditional territory. Okay, uh, the community would have been more or less towards the northern half of Wilson Lake today. So okay, that's CK today. Then north of that, Quadacha, which is a related community, and then south of that, McLeod Lake, which is also a related community. Okay, okay, that's interesting. All the way to Hudson's Hope. Wow, that's that's a massive area there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so what are the what are the stories from prior to the dam? I mean, I know that uh, there's a few, uh, there are a few books written about like uh, before the the dam was was built and uh, like about the whole the wild rivers that were were <laughs> were dammed uh, for the for the Seite. What 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 was the area like and what what was um, I guess what was the economic? You know, I mean, how did that whole how did your your uh, your 
your ancestors there support themselves in that area? Yeah, a lot of it was through trapping. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of it is through hunting. Uh, so those are the two common, uh, yeah. I guess, economic activities that existed prior to the dam. Yeah. And people have been trapping really well before the arrival of Europeans. Uh, yeah. They continued to trap and would trade with Hudson's Bay Company. And then after Hudson's Bay Company, a lot of the free traders, um, really, to the present day, in some instances. So there's still community members who are still trapping until um, quite recently, and I think even today. So it, the fur market really collapsed in 2019. Yes, thank you, Greenpeace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. And then um, one of the things with regards to my research was kind of answering that question. And so talking to community members, a lot of people got employment in sawmills around Summit Lake, um, around Finley Forks, uh, kind of starting in the early 20th century. And so... Increasingly, it was this lifestyle of uh, in the winter, people would trap, and in the summer, people would be working at these sawmills oh, okay. and getting employment there. Yeah. Okay, and that um, and that was after the dam, right? It was before the dam. Oh, that was before the dam. Yeah, okay, already. It was before the dam. Oh, okay. So then what happened when the dam came? Well, with regards to the dam, so first of all, <laughs> there's this huge question over what Indian Affairs said. <laughs> yes. Uh, what they told the people, um, and it gets complicated. Yes, because yeah, let's was, talk a little bit about that, about yeah. government promises, you know, like, okay, we're going to do this amazing thing and we're going to have amazing results. Um, yeah. Because that was what I grew up, you know, with, like, oh, yeah, the dam was going to be awesome. So what were, what were the First Nations there promised? Well, it depends on who promised them. Oh. And so um, in 56, well, you have Axel Vendergren proposing a dam of, Originally proposing a monorail to the Yukon, the dam becomes the way of power in that monorail. And so he's oh. a private industrialist. He's out of Sweden. Who is this? Axel Vennergren. Huh. Yeah, he's more famous for owning Electrolux. So oh. people are probably more familiar with that. Yeah. He also has a uh, research grant um, grant body. I like the idea of a uh, in the United States. To... <laughs> yeah, monorail up to uh, monorail. the Yukon. Um, for him, there seems to be no evidence that he ever talked to the local communities about this. And indeed... When he signed a memorandum to build the monorail, the province kept it a secret for a few months. Oh. <laughs> so they signed it in 56. It wasn't until the spring of uh, 57 that it actually became public knowledge. People in the province were upset. If you read through old newspaper articles from all over the province, people were shocked that the provincial government kept this a secret. The CCF was upset about it, so forerunners of the NDP. Um, but the big issue, and this is one of the things that I really explored in the um, in my dissertation, so it's actually a dissertation, not a book, I'm turning into a book currently, was that there had been a lot of proposed developments, things like monorails being proposed. Yes. So most people didn't really know if it was actually going to happen. It was one of those inferior things where maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't happen. And so there really wasn't a lot of communication directly sent to anyone, okay. <laughs> including members of... Uh, the Sekene Nation, so Fort Ware, uh, Fort Graham, uh, McLeod Lake, not a lot of information received there. Uh, in 61, the province nationalizes uh, Venergren's company oh. and creates, um, eventually a year later, BC Hydro. <laughs> really? So they take over his company. They take over the largest electrical company in the province, BC Electric. Um, and from what we can see based on the historical record, Bennett does this so that the Bennett Dam can go forward. Of course, at that point, it's called the Peace River Project. So he takes it over, nationalizes it, and that's when they decide they're actually going to move forward with building the dam. Okay, so how does it... Okay, so just um, just by... I mean, I'll just go back a little bit. Um, Daniel is a historian, and that means... Can you explain... Because you explained that a little bit, what that means. Because, I mean, I th- I have this idea what it means, but it's like you said you you dig through historical records to find out what history 
what is what is recorded or what's you, recorded in the historical records. What so, is recorded in the historical uh, there's records? There's a historian, the discipline of history is actually yes. going and finding these records. Um, yes. Having a sense of not only where to find them, but also how to look for them because mm-hmm. they're not always easily found, even in archives. Yeah. Um, and then actually going through and looking at the records. So for this uh, project, I talked to community members. Yeah. I talked to BC Hydro. I talked to the Water Controller's Office. I went to the BC Archives in Victoria. I went to the National Archives in Ottawa. Um, I went to um, the regional national archives that exists, I believe, in Burnaby, which you have to get uh, permission to actually visit. And then oh, I went it to, can it be? Can permission be denied? It can. <laughs> Whoa! It can. So there's okay. a public uh, branch in Ottawa, and then there's kind of the regional branch in. Burnaby. Did they let you in? Yes, they did. They did, huh. and then uh, a number of university archives. So here at UNBC, we have the Ray Wilson funds. So it's a collection of all Ray Wilson's documents that he donated to UNBC. Okay. So a lot of wonderful information there. Yes. Uh, Simon Fraser University, which W.A.C. Bennett helped found, has his papers. So looking at his records there, but so does UVic. Yeah. And so just looking at all these different records and seeing what was actually contained in them. Okay. Well, then how? Then my question is, how, how did we go from building a monorail up to the Yukon to building a dam? Or was that the intention? Or was the intention so the of the monorail? So the monorail is proposed? Yes. <laughs> you need electricity to power right. it. Right. Okay. Okay. And so that becomes part of the larger project. So the people who are surveying for Axel Wenner-Gren um, said, you know, hydroelectric power is the future. Of course, they're out of Sweden. Yeah. So Scandinavia has a lot of hydroelectric power. Yes. And, and they started looking at the Peace River. They also yes. started looking at the Yard River. So building dams on those two rivers. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then, okay, so, um, and and then the BC government took that over, national, nationalized it, and we got the WAC Bennett Dam, but no monorail. No monorail. So the monorail is quickly abandoned as being too expensive and being too um, unusual. And oh. so what we got instead and... Uh, the monorail would have gone from Vancouver? It would have gone from Prince George. From Prince George. So it's supposed to be an extension of the Pacific Great Eastern Railway. Okay. Which today is known as BC Rail. <laughs> okay. All right. And so what we got instead of the monorail is we got the extension up to Dees Lake uh, for BC Rail that briefly existed... And isn't really used anymore. Right. Yeah. Huh. So what was the, um, was it just at the time there just wasn't enough activity up in the Yukon to justify that? Or what was the reason given? Was it, or was it simply that WAC Bennett had this idea? Because I think Alcan would not have been built if it hadn't been for the WAC Bennett Dam, right? Well, Alcan was before the WAC Bennett Dam. It was before? Yeah. Oh gosh! Well, that okay. Now you now you need to educate but me. Bennett I didn't know that. Bennett uh, is part of this larger movement in British Columbia after World War II, looking to hydroelectric power as the future of the province. Right. Uh, didn't necessarily use the rhetoric of green energy. No. But there was this idea that if we built dams, we'd have cheap electricity. Yes. If we had cheap electricity, we could have projects like Elcan. Yes. And we were looking at the United States, things like the Hoover Dam, yes. the Grand Coulee Dam, uh, the Tennessee Valley, the, uh, Tennessee Valley Authority. And looking at all the industrialization that followed those. And so there's this idea that if we could build dams on the Peace, if we could build dams on the Columbia, uh, this has been its two-river policy, that British Columbia would industrialize uh, relatively quickly. And to a certain extent, it happened. It did. And we do have cheap energy if yeah. you compare it to other jurisdictions. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, not as cheap as Ben said it would be, but <laughs> cheap nonetheless. <laughs> no, it's never, never is. So uh, back to the promises that the, uh, so what were the promises made? And like, and you, like you said, depending on who you, who was making them and, and to whom they were being made. But uh, do you, what, what did you find? What were the promises made to? Well, there's the, the standard state? promises of, you know, cheap electricity. Yeah. Uh, the sense that rising waters are going to bring all boats up. Uh, yes. Excuse the pun. Yeah, <laughs> a recreation lake uh, and the trees that. out of the bottom of the. Yeah. Of the <laughs> but one of the issues that emerged was um, because BCI is a crown corporation, but it's owned by the province, and because the province isn't constitutionally responsible for Indigenous people in Canada, it's the federal government. Uh, it got into this quagmire of BC Hydro, the provincial government, and Indian Affairs, and the federal government uh, deciding to handle kind of any sort of negotiations. Um, any sort of information that was being sent into the community. Um, I was, quite interestingly, I found letters that BC Hydro sent to band members yeah. saying, we're going to build this dam, you're going to be flooded. Um, here's, here's who you contact if you have any questions or concerns or yes. if you want to talk about compensation. Indian Affairs follows this these letters by writing all these people and saying, don't worry about the letters, we're going to handle it for you. So, oh, oh, like we're going to take, we'll make sure that you're taken care of. You don't need to do a thing. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. So, which means that people weren't necessarily getting information directly from BC Hydro or the provincial government. They're getting it from Indian Affairs, and Indian Affairs takes a long time to move. <laughs> so, they start looking into what reserves are going to be flooded, for example. And in the case of my community, say K and A, we were the Fort Graham Band, or um, after fifty, uh, it was fifty nine. We were part of the Finley River Band, um, but it was, you know, kind of concluded that our reserves would be flooded out. The provincial government began to work with the federal government to create reserves to replace the ones that would be lost. It took until seventy one for those reserves to actually be created. So they knew before yeah. the dam was completed in 68 that this was going to happen. But the way government works, it took until three years after the water had actually started to come <laughs> up for reserves to be created. So kind of that quagmire there. And then talking to community amenders, talking to uh, elders, talking to uh, even looking at the historical record with regards to Indian affairs. <laughs> people would go up and they would meet with people. And it would be a one-hour session where this is what we're going to do. This is how you're going to be impacted. Um, They tend to talk only to the men. Yeah. So women were excluded altogether. So there's that larger question there. Um, And then with regards to what was actually said, one of the people working for (laughs) Indian Affairs, um, yeah, he would later talk and uh, about how he became terrified because when he started talking about the land being lost, the land being flooded. Um, apparently community members were upset about that and so this person became afraid (laughs) and so after that actually started just telling people what they wanted to hear (laughs) rather than what was actually going to happen (laughs) okay (laughs) well uh, we're going to pick up on that Uh, we do need to take a break so we'll we'll be back and I'm talking with Daniel Sims historian from UNBC Support CFIS Community Radio while having fun with online bingo Tuesday nights. Stop by CFIS Studios Monday through Friday between 8.30 and 5 or Saturdays between 8.30 and 2 to purchase your $5 bingo tickets. Then play from the comfort of your own home Tuesday nights at 7 on YouTube. Hundreds of dollars in prize money is up for grabs. Independent bingo license 146929. Know your limit. Play within it. CFIS Tuesday Night Bingo. Get your tickets today at 1299 3rd Avenue. 
Northern Health is taking actions to continue protecting people, communities, and the health care system this respiratory season by encouraging people in the North aged six months and older to get their COVID-19 and influenza vaccines. Visit getvaccinated.gov.bc.ca to get registered. Invitations will then be sent by email and text message with an invitation link to book your vaccine appointment. If you need help scheduling your vaccines, call 1-833-838-2323. Visit northernhealth.ca for clinic information in your community. Eat healthy and fresh at Homesteader Meats, founded by Ben and Rosella Clausen in 1982. Homesteader Meats has two premium quality meat and gluten-free products, plus Wednesday is Seniors Day at Homesteader Meats. Seniors 55 and over save 10% off regular prices. Single portions are available in most items, including pierogies and sausages, and are half-pound packages off ground beef, ground pork, stew meat, and meat pies. Everything from Erladen to Patties is at Homesteader Meats in two locations, College Heights and Park Hill Center. Forecast from Environment Canada for today, sunny, a high of minus 7, a wind chill this morning to minus 24. Tonight, clear, wind from the north at 20K early this evening, a low of minus 14. On Friday morning, fog patches then sunny, wind up to 15, a high of minus 3, with a wind chill to minus 11. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. All right, I'm back uh, talking with Daniel Sims. Um, we are just talking about this poor, <laughs> this representative from, that was a Canadian government yep. representative, Indian Affairs. Yeah. He was, he got so frightened that he would, uh, uh, just tell the people <laughs> what they wanted to hear. So, uh, the, the dam took a long time to build. Mm-hmm. Um, however, even in that long time, there wasn't time to, to do the proper, like they didn't get rid of all the trees that were going to be flooded. And of course, that rendered the lake pretty much well, a dangerous place. What what impact did that have? I mean, well, I mean, besides all of the displacement <laughs> stuff, right? I mean, and maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. So, so to clarify, with regards to removing the trees, they could have removed all the trees. Yes, they could have. When you read through the BC Forestry yes. um, records, they originally budgeted six million dollars to remove all the trees. Yeah, they realized when they started building the dam that they were going to need a lot more money than six million dollars. Uh-huh. Um, but they made the decision that they were going to stick to $6 million. <laughs> so they decided they were going to leave trees in. Um, and it was just the simple fact that they didn't want to spend more money than they had to. Um, there was a hope the trees wouldn't uproot. <laughs> there was hope. There was hope. Um, <laughs> but one of the impacts, Was it based on scientific evidence? No, and this is no. one of the issues of the Bennett Dam. Ray Wilson would later say in the 1970s that the word ecology was a word he'd never heard of. <laughs> and so when they were building this dam, it was a uh, feat of engineering, you know, mar- marvel. marvel yeah. Yes. Um, but he also was quite uh, blunt in the 60s that they were doing this largely based on the arithmetic. So the math worked. They didn't actually have any practical experience. The Bennett Dam was one of the biggest dams in the world. It so it's, it's actually quite a miracle that it is standing there. <laughs> well, not just... a miracle in the sense if the math holds, it yes, should stand. It should work, but they yes. were doing they were doing it based on the math, not necessarily on practical experience. And envir- oh, so that's why the six million dollars for one thing. Yeah, it was like, and so when it came to looking at the environmental impact, when it came to considering how the landscape would change once the water came up, or even where the water would go, <laughs> they had no idea. They had no idea, <laughs> um, and they didn't factor for the land being so sandy. Um, so they were hoping that the trees would stay uh, rooted once the water came up because As the soil who... would keep them in place. Yeah, but it's... the land up there is very sandy, and so what happened is <laughs> and slides. Is, 
slides. So yeah, you'd have trees uprooting. You'd have them to this day still uprooting. It's, it's uh, heading out of the water like torpedoes, and then floating in the actual reservoir itself. And then yeah, the shoreline just being huge, like landslides. And this is something that was unexpected because they never really thought about it. It wasn't a big concern. Um, yeah. And they didn't know how fast the water would actually rise. So once the water started to rise, um, community members from Seke Adene, um, McLeod Lake, Wadacha, were caught off guard, but BC Forest crews were also caught off guard. So the water just started coming up, and people would but n- wake up with flooded uh, cabins and things like that. But nobody died? Uh, some people did die. Some people did? Some people did oh die. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and uh, the Wilson Lake Reservoir is still a dangerous lake to travel on to this Yes, day. it is. Yeah, I know yeah. that. I think it's... I, I mean, one of my uncles was actually, he did some, um, what, what do they call it when they're scavenging the, um, for the, the timber that's floating? Oh, yeah, just uh, salvage. Salvage. Salvage, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the province has been cleaning up the reservoir since 68. <laughs> There's prob- still a lot of debris out there. At probably much greater cost than, you know, if they had doubled the budget to $12 million, they probably could have done it all. Yeah. I mean, there's the famous tree crusher in Mackenzie there, yes. but, that, but that was such, I think, a terrible idea. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's it's quite a romantic little, uh, or romantic big machine, uh, you know, for little boys' imaginations especially, yes. but <laughs> but I was like, okay, if that if you're just crushing the trees, they will float, right? And they will, I guess, I mean, I guess the, the thing with those trees is they eventually would have washed up on the... That was the hope. That was... Yeah, and there was just the, <laughs> hope, the that hope that the trees that weren't actually knocked down would just remain rooted. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so the, the area that was flooded for the CK Dene, was that sort of their main area? Like, did they have to, I mean, I, like, or was it sort of the outskirts of their, of the territory? It's the heart of the traditional it was territory. The, it was the heart. So, Kodacha, McLeod Lake, CK Dene are all part of the CK Dene nation. Yeah. And when I was talking to elders, there was a sense that prior to the dam, it was basically one nation, one community. Uh, people would travel from Summit Lake all the way up to Tudati Lake. Um, and would often come into Prince George to trade um, or buy goods. And they still do that to and this day. And this is on the Crooked, Crooked River, right? Crooked River, yeah. I know. Like, I'm such a romantic because I, we yeah. drive we drive through the Pine Pass a lot. And when I look at the Crooked River, I look at it and I, I just try to picture all the canoes and the boats and yeah. everything. So, Giscombe Portage, Summit Lake, Crooked River, getting into uh, McLeod Lake, getting into the Pack River, Parsnip, and then up the Finley. And so that devastated transportation. People who had been traveling on the river for, you know, Years at that point, sometimes decades, suddenly had Williston Lake in the center, and the riverboats weren't designed to go on Williston Lake. Well, uh, quite dangerous to actually use. Yeah, spe- Lake. it would have been even more dangerous those first years, right? Yes. So suddenly, so this the dam comes up, and suddenly the the Seke find themselves not connected. Not connected. So Cloud Lake is cut off from uh, Fort Ware, and then for the people from Seke today, um, they don't have a reserve to go to. And so you have people living in logging camps, and as the water goes out, they're being relocated from these temporary logging camps year in, year out. And then ultimately in 71, there are new reserves created by Mackenzie. But by that point in time, most of the community has given up on government promises, and they've moved back to uh, Anjanika. And so they established a community at Anjanika. And there had been a village there before that was now underwater. Um, But yeah. What a story. Wow. I mean, that's basically... Like if you're being displaced year after year or, you know, every couple of years, you're not establishing, you know, your community is just being splintered at all, all the time, right? Yeah. No. Well, that explains, that explains the, um, the First Nations resistance to, like, to me, you know, as a, 
like because I wasn't impacted in that way, of course. And it's like, oh, no wonder they people were so upset. I mean, what, all I got from where I was living in, like in, in in Alberta, was that yeah, government didn't keep their promises, and the lake is not fit for what they said it would be. But for the Sake Diné, it was a lot more than that. Yeah, and Quidditch is still one of the most isolated communities in British Columbia. It's about 10 hours north of here, depending on how fast you drive. It might be a little bit shorter if you drive faster on the logging roads. And the yeah. logging road only came through in 1990. So prior to that, it was either you're still using the reservoir, using yes. the rivers, or you're flying yes. in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were logging up in that area during that time. Yeah. Not, we never, I mean, I think my husband spent one summer uh, logging up at, in Janica. Yeah. Uh, but that was flying in. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he, he could drive technically, but like you said, a 10 hour drive. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So, um, okay, well let's, let's take a break before we uh, start on our next topic. And uh, so we'll be back after these messages. The BC Ministry of Jobs, Economic Development and Innovation has launched the Securing Small Business Rebate Program. The program provides small businesses with funds for commercial property crime and vandalism repairs or to implement preventative measures. One-time repair rebates of up to $2,000 and preventative rebates of up to $1,000 are available. Applications and full details are available through the news link at bcchamber.org. Applications will be accepted through the end of January 2025. Hi, I'm Darren Guest from Northland Dodge. People hate buying cars. I hate buying cars. If you're holding off buying because you don't want to deal with the hassle, I'm here to make it easy for you. Northland Dodge has more trucks in stock than we have had in the past three years. Plus, we have a huge assortment of awesome used trucks and SUVs. No pressure, no hard sell. Stop by for a coffee and I'll help you find the vehicle that's right for you. I'm Darren Guest, Northland Dodge, dealer number 30541. The Q3 Creative Business Hub is home to the Q3 Community Market. The market has tables available for home-based businesses year-round for greater exposure of your products and services. Reasonably priced in the air-conditioned comfort of the Q3 Creative Business Hub, it's ideal for crafters and independent professionals alike. Reserve your table today by emailing q3building at gmail.com. The Q3 Community Market, Saturdays from 830 to 2 at the corner of Quebec and 3rd. God thinks you're worth dying for. Jesus says the world is worth saving. And in the meantime, there are things you can do to help take care of the place. And if you're not sure how, there's probably a YouTube video for it. Do-it-yourself projects are great, but there are some things we can't and shouldn't do ourselves. Dr. Michael Ziegler talks about spiritual growth during the season of Lent, this week on The Lutheran Hour. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. All right, I'm back talking with uh, Daniel Sims. Uh, so, Daniel, we were talking about the impact of the uh, the, the, the dam and the, the Williston Lake rising faster than expected and the displacement. So what did people do? I mean, you said that some were staying in logging camps, some, you know, would sort of just be moved uh, every year or something like that. Um, what did most people, members of the community, do? It depends on the community. Um, so for people from Quidacha, uh, Fort Ware, most yep. people moved back to Fort Ware. And Fort Ware became incredibly isolated. By and the Fort Ware is further north. Further north. Yeah. And then from McLeod Lake, a lot of people moved back to McLeod Lake. Uh, but for the people kind of from Sekedene or Fort Graham or the southern half of the Finley River Band, depending on how you want to interpret that, stuck in the logging camp, 
Uh, but some of them moved back to Antonica, as I've mentioned. Some of them, however, moved to Prince George and other locations as well. So there's kind of this splintering of the community. Um, and then you know, people's lives play out differently based on that. Yeah. How did the ones uh, who moved to Prince George, how did they fare? Uh, really dependent on the family. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so for some people, you know, still remain cultural, uh, culturally uh, relevant, uh, still maintain the culture, uh, still maintain connections to community, things like that. For other people, not so much. So mm. you have people who kind of disperse and lose their connection to community um, for a variety of reasons. So it really depended on the individual. Individual, yeah. And what about, for, I mean, what about for those that have stayed? And, and do you think... Um, I mean, my knowledge is that there's there's just been a lot of difficulties, as one could expect. Um, how are things up there now, like Fort Ware and Janica? Well, with Janica, one of the big things is because they decided to move to uh, where the old village of Janica had been and kind of reestablished it on the bluffs above the old village, which are now, is now on the lakeshore. Um, Indian Ferries didn't recognize it as a reserve. Oh. And so Indian Affairs' response was, you are getting no aid Full oh, stop. okay. So, okay, we're back so, to Indian Affairs. <laughs> so with regards to Anjanika, from more or less 71 until 89, 1990, Indian Affairs provides next to nothing with regards to aid. And the people are there largely out of... I okay, okay, so let me, get, get, let me get this straight. Your reserve is flooded. Yeah. Uh, you're told, we'll take care of everything. Yeah. Like So when BC Hydro sends those letters, we'll take care of everything, don't, don't never mind. And then... But they're left without a reserve, and they move to the place, you know, just because people want to survive. <laughs> and then they're told, oh, no, no, we, we can't help you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. golly, I love government. Yeah, and a big part of it, too, is just the tired of government promises that aren't being fulfilled. Yeah. And with regards to the new reserves that are eventually created near Mackenzie, having no desire to actually live near Mackenzie. So though, as many elders pointed out, that's actually the traditional territory of McLeod Lake. So they may be Sekene, they may be our brothers and sisters, there's that connection there, but it's not within our own traditional territory. So this desire to be back home, um, and really this desire as time goes on to really tell the provincial government, tell the federal government, we don't care, this is where we're from, this is where we're going to live. Um, okay, can you explain that a little bit to me? Like, okay, so so they were offered a reserve near Mackenzie, or they were given mm-hmm. one? They were given one eventually. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's just dig into that a little bit, and then, Mac- but, but it was traditionally it belonged to the McLeod Lake. It was in their traditional territory. It was in their traditional territory. So, how does that like? Can you explain that a little bit? Unpack that a little bit. What that means? So yeah, so with regards to Sekane traditional territory, um, you have kind of the national territory, which includes all the Sekane nations. Okay. But then you have the divisions for the different bands, the different First Nations, and then below that you have the divisions for the different families. Okay. Can you explain? Uh, sorry, and I'm being the real idiot here, but I mean, so okay. Um, could you think of, a, of that as like maybe England with all the different Yeah, so it would be lords. the equivalent with regards to England. It would be like the different um, counties okay. or shires or whatever you want okay. to refer to it. Okay, yeah. right. And just and so basically it would be like telling somebody from, can we, what's an example of telling somebody some- from Wessex that they should move to York. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so okay. they're both English. Right. And so, yeah, you know, yeah. I know my sister married uh, a guy from, but like, I don't want to move there. So yeah. that's sort of, that's okay. That that explains that yeah. perfectly. Yeah. And part of it too is with regards to Indian Affairs is um, decision on where the reserves should be. They didn't consult anyone in the community. No. Um, they and did consult uh, the chief of McLeod Lake, 
which is really odd. And the chief from McLeod Lake told me that. <laughs> he <laughs> thought they were going to ask other people. They just asked him. Oh. And ultimately, their conclusion was Mackenzie is this instant city that comes into existence yes. in 66. We should have reserves by Mackenzie so that people can live near Mackenzie. Right. And, and, and so you can see, okay, so they're thinking, so they'll be near work. Yep. Uh, so it's not it not wasn't necessarily a bad in, you, you you could say that there wasn't any bad intent there necessarily yeah. but it just didn't work it, it just didn't work yeah it just didn't work yeah and that was one of the big issues with regards to it and the fact that it took three years for it to actually happen so the process starts before the dam is completed but it takes government years to actually create a reserve even to, even to this day and so people aren't allowed to move on to the reserves until they're completed, which means they're in temporary logging camps. And by that point in time, they've just given up on listening to the government or listening right. to government promises. Yeah, I'm very familiar with that, yeah. <laughs> with that sentiment. Um, so then what about, um, what about now? Um, you said that there was a road. It takes about 10 hours still? About 10 hours to Kodacha, about 8 hours to Sekei, depending on how fast you drive and the road conditions. <laughs> So. Yes, but but I mean that's gravel roads. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's pretty miserable. It's a logging road. <laughs> it's a logging road. It's a logging road. And what is the lake like these days? Uh, it's still dangerous. <laughs> so it's basically an inland sea. Uh, that's one thing that people uh, don't necessarily recognize. Uh, water's deep. Um, an inland sea. What does yeah. that? Well, the like? water's deep. That's one okay, big so thing. That, okay, so that okay. So the water is very deep. And it is big enough that it actually has its own effect on the environment in a big way with regards to wave creation. Yes. Um, and also with regards to wind. And yeah. So you can get these massive white cap waves that actually mm-hmm. come up out of nowhere and uh, can easily swamp vessels that aren't ocean worthy. Huh. Yeah. Well, that, okay, that I, I I always knew that it was dangerous, but I. Yeah, and then you still have debris. <laughs> yes, they st- and, and still the occasional tree popping up, right? Still occasional tree popping up and things like that, yeah. Gosh, gosh. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're on the on, if you're on the lake in a good day and everything's just calm, it's fairly good. But if you get there and you're caught by a storm, um, yeah, you can be easily swamped. And because of the debris is there, yeah, the debris can sometimes stop you from getting to shore even to this day. Okay. Yeah. Have you kept track at all of uh, the site C build? Yes. Um, how did they do this time? Um, more consultation with Indigenous communities, although with regards to consultation, not necessarily consultation or Indigenous peoples get to stop it or prevent yeah. it or change it. So, I mean, more information is being provided. doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean there's more impact or yeah. more uh, feedback from the community that's actually listened to. But I, there's a sense that BC Hydro is handling it. Indian Affairs or Indigenous Services Canada is handling it a little bit better, better. Okay. in that more information is actually being provided. Um and then with regards to um, the size of the reservoir, there was an attempt to try and make sure the reservoir is not as big. So, not and, as and so the impact, um, so did they manage this time to actually log all the trees, that kind of stuff? Yeah, a lot of the trees have been logged out. Yeah. So there's been a lot of clearing there, uh, a lot of planning, a lot of environmental impact studies. Again, people are opposed to it. I don't want to act like they aren't. Uh, a lot of nations are opposed to it. I don't yeah. want to act like they aren't. Uh, but there has been more information more provided. Information. Okay. Well, it is time for a break. So we, we'll be back after this. I'm talking to Daniel Sims, historian from University of uh, Northern BC. Caring for someone in long-term care brings a change in role for caregivers as the support team expands. Learn how to adjust your caregiving role and work effectively with the long-term care team tonight online. It's one way to help ensure the person dealing with dementia receives the care they need. Sessions are free to attend. For more information, visit alzbc.org slash edu-workshops 
working with the care team in long-term care tonight from 6.30 to 8 online. Your Prince George Council of Seniors is looking for volunteers. Help out with their Better at Home program to assist shut-ins with a few weekly tasks. Meals on Wheels needs drivers for meal deliveries Monday through Friday. Spend a bit of time each week making friendly phone calls to isolated or lonely seniors or help out at the Resource Center's front desk. If you have a few hours to spare, email hcn at pgcos.ca or call the Seniors Resource Center at 250-564-5888. The Heart Pioneer Center has an array of delicious meal choices for anyone to enjoy. Regular lunches are just $12. Place your order between 9 and 1 the day before by calling the center at 250-962-6712. Then pick up or dine in between 1130 and 1. Open Monday to Friday from 9 to 3. The Heart Pioneer Center, 6986 Heart Highway. Call 250-962-6712 and get your freshly prepared meal at an affordable price. Forecast from Environment Canada for today sunny, a high of minus 7 with a wind chill to minus 10. Tonight clear, wind from the north at 20k early this evening, a low of minus 14. On Friday morning fog patches then sunny, wind up to 15, a high of minus 3 with a wind chill to minus 11. It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. All right, we're back. I'm uh, uh, chatting with Daniel Sims. Uh, Daniel, what's your current research project at UNBC? I'm looking at concepts of wilderness and uh, failed economic developments in the Finley Parsnip watershed. So when I was doing research on the Bennett Dam, when I was talking to elders, a lot of elders would talk about mines, forestry activity, homesteaders, uh, other activities like that that had been proposed in the past. Sometimes they had gone forward. Sometimes they had succeeded for a limited time. Sometimes they had failed altogether. And so a lot of this isn't necessarily recognized in kind of the standard history of the North. It's still viewed as untouched wilderness. And so the project is really kind of interrogating this concept of wilderness and what it actually means. And part of it also is getting into the Bennett Dam. So for a lot of people in the North, there was this sense that okay, Axel Vennergren is the hundredth person to propose something that's outlandish that's going to happen in the north, and if we're playing the odds, it's going to fail too. Ah. And so Bennett had this wonderful story about how he uh, had a vision for the Peace River up by Hudson Hope, how he looked down on it, and he had this vision of modern life, suburbia, and how this trapper came by, and this trapper called him crazy and laughed at him. And the one thing that I'm really looking at is that that trapper was reasonable and actually laughing because Bennett would have been at that point the 101 person yes. to suppose, uh, propose this. Huh. So, um, so you, uh, your research, what is the sort of, what are you hoping to come out with at the end? Oh, I'm just documenting what okay. has actually occurred. So last spring, for example, I was working uh, with a research team out of Florida State, um, just mapping out old homesteads. And so there is this Okay, sense. so when you're saying homesteads, do you mean settler homesteads? Like yes. Like European homesteads? Oh, yeah. okay. And so there's this sense that Prince George is kind of the northern edge of homesteading. <laughs> yes. And that people were going west into the Bulky Valley and areas yes. like that. But there were people who were actually homesteading north of Summit Lake. Um, homesteading all along the Finley River, the Parsnip River, the Crooked River, McLeod Lake. Like homesteading as in farming? Farming, yeah. Really? Yeah. And some of them were successful. And some of them actually, they only uh, left once the Bennett Dam was announced. So they knew they were going to be flooded out, and so they left. Interestingly enough, I seem to find some evidence for people 
homesteaded once the dam was announced with the apparent desire to get compensation and be bought out (laughs) (laughs) yes there's always some of those people (laughs) yeah wow so how far up like all the way up to hudson's hope or Uh, beyond so really all the way up to uh, fort Ware. so there were different little homesteads that existed and it's interesting um trying to grow wheat trying to grow um you know root vegetables hay things like that so that's interesting. Yeah. And depending on um, what side of the valley you're on, uh, if you're on the east side, you get a lot of sun uh, yes. throughout the year. And so it is possible to grow yes. crops. And people yes. Do. And the further north you go, the more heat units you get during the summer. Yeah. 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 So it is, it's possible. Yeah. Uh, it's not necessarily the breadbasket of Saskatchewan. No. But no. people were homesteading up there. Wow. And hay was the other big one. So with regards to having just um, cattle, uh, horses, things like that. Yes. And it was often tied into as well proposed mines or mines that actually were occurring, um, mineral claims, and um, even some early hydroelectric dams that people were proposing. So the Bennett Dam wasn't the first dam proposed for the Peace River. There were numerous dams that were actually proposed for the different rivers, not only on the Peace, but some of the tributaries like Manson River, sorry, Manson Creek. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, So what is the state, like, well, I mean, maybe... Maybe you don't know, but what's the state of the wildlife and the fishing and, and everything up there right now? Um, it depends on the area. It depends on the region. With regards to fishing, you had a replacement of all of the uh, fish that really live in rivers yeah. with fishes that live in lakes. So there's changes in the very species of the fish. This is why, like there. you were saying, like it's a massive ecological impact, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so you have that change there. One of the other issues with the Wilson Lake Reservoir is that mercury levels haven't dropped So with most reservoirs, mercury levels will peak uh, once the reservoir is filled. This is uh, methyl mercury, organic mercury, generally released from uh, plant vegetation, plant life, animal life, dying, rotting, and releasing into the water. It hasn't dropped, and it seems to be due to the fact that there's natural mercury seams up there. So yeah, the area is still rich in mineral resources, and there's a lot of mines that are imposed, a lot of mines that are actually going forward. So that's one of the big issues with regards to aquatic life. Uh, for animal life, it really depends on the animals. Um, so <laughs> there were no impact studies that were conducted. No. Um, BC Wildlife, their policy prior to the Bennett Dam being constructed was to allow people to hunt as many moose as they wanted. Yes. Um, this would be indigenous and non-indigenous. Yes. Just kill them all. Yep. Uh, take the jawbones into game wardens. Um, so moose were decimated. Yes. And that was before they lost a lot of their uh, habitat to the actual reservoir itself. And then with regards to the caribou herds, their uh, migration routes were disrupted by the reservoir as well. So devastation in that sense. Okay. So how about farming? Is there any farming up there now? Um, Communities are increasingly starting to farm. Okay. That's interesting. (laughs) So, yeah, my community has a reserve called Police Meadows. Um, We actually had um, a uh, community farm out there. So it hasn't been operating in recent years for a variety of reasons, but we were growing root vegetables, growing other vegetables out there. Um, We also had a herd of bison, um, which I understand have been released into the wild, Um, but other animals as well, pigs, chickens, things like that. So it's feasible. And then Quidatcha has their greenhouses. So Quidatcha has some greenhouses that are active and they... um, they not only use it to feed themselves, but they also donate it here in Prince George. Really? Yeah. That's that's fascinating. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So um, just back to your rec- your current project, 
are you um like how many people like how many like when you're talking about the homesteads up there how many were there it's over 100 over 100 wow. <laughs> so it's not a staggering amount i don't want to pretend that it is but yep. it's not insignificant either mm-hmm. and how did they i mean before the dam i mean how did they get up there river river by the so the river giscom yeah. portage summit lake or yeah. they'd use the peace river canyon and they come from hudson hope Right. So really those two ways. And then sometimes there'd be overland from Manson Creek to Manson Landing. Okay. Uh, using kind of the trails that were going to the Almanica Gold Rush. Huh. Yeah. And well, most of the homesteads are actually on the rivers yes. <laughs> or on the lakes. So, yes. you know, they, they're not only using the rivers and lakes to get into the area, but they're also homesteading along those rivers. Right. I mean, it's it's sort of like when you, if you buy a property, you have to consider how many hydro poles do I want on my, yeah. do I want to pay for? <laughs> yeah. It's sort of that idea, right? Like you want to be close to yeah. the source of your water and your transportation and all of that. Okay. It is time for a break. We'll be back after this. Canadian Arts and Culture Organizations. Student Work Placement Program at the Cultural Human Resources Council is able to provide wage subsidies for post-secondary level students to work for you. A two-minute phone call to confirm your eligibility, 20 minutes to complete the online application, and you'll secure thousands of dollars in less than two weeks. If you hired, currently employ, or would like to hire students, we want to hear from you. Find our contact info at culturalhrc.ca. A priest, a minister, and a rabbi walked into Deb's Cafe. Deb asked them, what is this, some kind of joke? Like everyone else, they just wanted great coffee, a fresh, hearty lunch, and some tasty baked treats. Our specialty bakery also offers numerous choices that please diabetic and gluten-sensitive customers. If you're ready for a treat, let us put a smile on your face at Deb's Cafe and Specialty Bakery, next to Pharmasave at 7th and Quebec. Hi, I'm Darren Guest from Northland Dodge. People hate buying cars. I hate buying cars. If you're holding off buying because you don't want to deal with the hassle, I'm here to make it easy for you. Northland Dodge has more trucks in stock than we have had in the past three years. Plus, we have a huge assortment of awesome used trucks and SUVs. No pressure, no hard sell. Stop by for a coffee and I'll help you find the vehicle that's right for you. I'm Darren Guest, Northland Dodge, dealer number 30541. God thinks you're worth dying for. Jesus says the world is worth saving. And in the meantime, there are things you can do to help take care of the place. And if you're not sure how, there's probably a YouTube video for it. Do-it-yourself projects are great, but there are some things we can't and shouldn't do ourselves. Dr. Michael Ziegler talks about spiritual growth during the season of Lent, this week on the Lutheran Hour. Be listening for the Lutheran Hour Sunday mornings at 8 here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George. You're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. All right, we're back speaking with uh, Daniel Sims, a historian from the University of Northern BC. One question I had is um, when, uh, so before Europeans came, uh, who were the First Nations, uh, like you said, that they were all, they were trapping? for trapping before so who were they trading with at that time other first nations okay. so uh how one far of, like how far did they travel it would be continent-wide depending on the uh trader wide. um Dep- a lot of it See, would be okay lo- okay sorry <laughs> now i'm going there now i'm going there okay tell you got to tell me about that yeah continent-wide yeah so there's um 
archaeological evidence indicating that uh, buffalo killed at head smashed in buffalo jump so yes. in alberta would be traded and would be traded along these trade networks all as far south and as far uh, east i guess as st louis cahokia if not further and then obsidian is also a great way of uh, seeing how far trade networks uh, moved because you can tell where the obsidian came from based on its chemical composition so if you wow. find it at a site, you can find where it came from. Yes. And then here, just west of here, there's the uh, Dekelf village of D- uh, Chinlat. Okay. And when archaeological work was done there, they found Sung Dynasty coins. Uh, they found... Excuse- Sung Dynasty coins. Okay. No, no. Okay. So these are coins from China. What? <laughs> the village um, was abandoned before contact with the Europeans. And so it's one of those questions of how did it actually arrive there, and it appears it arrived through trade networks. And there is an indigenous group, the Yupik, who live to this day on both sides of the Bering Strait. Um, they're related to the Inuit, and yeah. uh, there seems to be the limited trade across the Bering Strait. So do you think do you think the most likely explanation is that they came across that that those Sung you said Sung Dynasty Sung Dynasty coin probably came across the Bering Strait either traded or it came across the Pacific Ocean, <laughs> um, probably a shipwreck. And to this day, boats that uh, lose control, lose power, yes. will wash up on the west coast. So we know that you know after Fukushima, we were getting debris yes. here in British Columbia, yes. and so for a coin like that, there doesn't seem to be any evidence of trade ships actually coming across from. Uh, China or Japan, but theoretically it's possible. Okay, so you're talking like pre-European con- yep. Okay, um, so so you think it's likely that it, like, so either it was traded across uh, the Bering Strait or it could have been a ship washed ashore yep. and somebody found them and, and brought them up. Um, yeah. Okay, so what about, okay, so you, but you were saying that when the, your people were trading, uh, doing fur, tra- uh, fur trading before Europeans came with like from across across the continent. So has, um, you were saying, head smashed in the bison, uh, you know, evidence being found elsewhere. Uh, so what about north north northern BC? What is now northern BC for going? Do you find evidence of it across the country or? Yeah, yeah. So obsidian is the big one. Oh, obsidian. In British oh, Columbia. that's yeah. why you mentioned this obsidian. Yeah. So finding okay. it from the various sources from the Ring of Fire, and finding it in uh, various sites across kind of Canada, the United States. Gosh. And again, a lot of the trade would have been fairly local, but there were extended trade routes that existed. Okay. And it could be trade routes that where it would be multiple people handing it off at various points. Okay. Well, that's that's fascinating. So then, um, so and that leads into the the book that you've written with uh, in conjunction with someone else, the fur trader. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a book I uh, wrote with a colleague at the University of Alberta, Ingrid er- uh, Ingrid Erberg. Uh, she's a uh, professor in Scandinavian studies, and it's a uh, scholarly edition of a memoir from a Norwegian fur trader who traded in northern Manitoba in the 1920s. So Einar Mortensen, uh, he came from Norway. Uh, he went to the Paw. Uh, he traded in northern Manitoba, and then he went back to Norway and actually ran a uh, furniture company for years in Norway. Not Ikea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was famous enough to actually get Prince Philip to visit it. Wow. So, But what happened is he passed away. His daughter-in-law and his son found his memoirs, and so they wanted to get it published. They got it published in Norwegian, where it was a bestseller. They got it published in Finnish, also a bestseller. And so where, Ing- where Ingrid and I came in is they wanted to have a English version of it. 
So translating into English, but also providing context with regards to it. So it was a wonderful project that Inger and I worked on, and we did get a chance to work with his daughter-in-law as well. So the three of us kind of putting this manuscript together multi-year, and uh, we finally published it uh, not last year, uh, but the summer before. Okay, well, that's interesting. So how was the... um the the edition you said in Norway it was a bestseller. Yes. So that was the first version. Yeah. And then you have since you provided some some other context. Well, we provided an English version. Or Engl- <laughs> English and and provided a little bit more context. So, how much difference is there between the two versions? I mean, the big one is that we have the scholarly introduction. Okay. So we have an article that precedes it where we talk about the actual manuscript, where it came from, um, but also how we worked with it, how we translated it, and then providing some of the historical context of uh, what he's talking about in there. Hmm. So. Um, so do you think it would... Well, I'm just, I'm just intrigued by the idea that, that a book about the North American fur trade would be a bestseller in Norway. Uh, it's part of the tradition of people like Helga Instad writing about kind of North America, writing about exploration. Oh. And one of the things that we theorized was that it's possible that Einar decided to abandon his manuscript when Helga Instad began publishing his manuscripts because he felt like Helga was doing a better job. <laughs> but we're not entirely sure because he didn't tell his family why he wrote this or why he just abandoned it. Oh, okay. So it's possible he might have started it because of Helga Instad. Huh. Yeah. Wow. So much fascinating stuff. So, uh, like, you've been uh, uh, doing this for some years already. Mm-hmm. Um, what is sort of your um, – do you have any projects that you just are really hoping to get to soon? I mean, the Bennett Dam, turning yeah. the dissertation into a book, yeah. <laughs> is what I'm currently working on. And mm-hmm. then looking at the failed economic developments is a wonderful activity. So last summer we had a research team come up uh, from Florida State. Yeah. So it was a wonderful experience uh, just having people come and actually do the work, meet with people at UNBC, meet with people in community, and kind of bring the two universities together. So wonderful opportunity there. So what's there – What what was uh, here for University of Florida to send students up? Like, what was So they have a faculty member, Tyler McCreary, who's yeah. actually from Smithers. He's okay. written uh, about the Wet'suwet'en extensively. Yeah. And as it turned out, when he got his PhD, where could he get the job? Yes. Florida. So he got his job down in Florida. But I'd met him years before. Uh-huh. Um, but his work is here in northern BC. Wow. And what what are you sort of hoping for that uh, that collaboration to come out of that? Well, books. Books, so yeah. Books is what we're looking at, but also maps. And so one of the wonderful things we were doing last year was not only looking, talking about old homesteads, old mining claims, but we had a uh, student who was actually mapping them uh, using satellite maps. And nice. so we could drive around and actually like find the locations, look at them, see what's there, see what remains. Um, it was a wonderful experience. And particularly driving in northern British Columbia, <laughs> the student was able to upload these maps into the GPS system in the truck. Yes. And so we could then just use the maps to actually get around. Okay. So it was a, a little bit like, what is that? Geocaching. Yeah, geocaching. <laughs> yeah. A little bit. <laughs> wow. So, but we can't go on Google and find these homesteads. No. Hey? No. Oh, man. No. <laughs> oh, man. You can go on Gator. <laughs> okay. All right, Gator. There you heard it. Yeah. Um, well, that is just fascinating. So... Um, Thing I just really appreciate you coming in. Uh, I just think it. I mean, history is is so incredibly important, and uh, and I've always. I mean, one of my. I mean, I'm hoping to live long enough to see more, especially First Nations history published, because I think it's important. I mean, you have grand stories to tell, and I'm glad that somebody's beginning to tell them. I mean, 
beginning. I know other people have told them, but it's like to make them accessible to the to the wider public and in that would I mean it has to start somewhere. You have to start with the with those original documents and and the oral history of course and Yeah. And I mean it's a big transformation. Like I've been teaching at a university for over a decade at this point and I have a number of colleagues across Canada, across kind of the world who are in a similar situation. And uh, for a lot of us, it's we're finishing our first or second books. Yeah, uh, we're getting articles out, but and then, so there's a lot of new uh, new research being done. That's good, and from that will come stories that are less academic and more, and uh, that hopefully will make the bestseller list. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming in, <laughs> Daniel. You. I really appreciate that. And uh, for our listeners, of course, please tune in f- tomorrow for, for the Friday Political Panel with Andreas Krebs.